Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Before we dive into the scriptures this morning, we're going to do what we do every single Sunday at CBC. We, we come in from a place, from a culture that is incredibly, incredibly critical. And we know right here, right now, whether you're in person, watching online, whether you came in from Romania, we know right here, right now that, that God's going to speak to us, that he has a word for us, that the Holy Spirit is near and active as we open the scriptures So we're going to fight the criticalness of culture, come in this place and say, how is God forming me and how can I join the conversation of faith that God's having right here and right now? So we're just going to take a second and we're going to pray. I'm going to ask that you pray that the spirit might speak to your spirit this morning. I'll see you pray for me that I might do a good job of showing you a beautiful picture of Jesus. So join me. God, I'm thankful that we can be here. Each and every Sunday, the world is chaotic and busy and, and, and it's just It's so refreshing to be reminded of our purpose, to be reminded of what truly matters and to worship the only God that can withstand the weight of our worship. I'm thankful to be here this morning as we listen to how you're forming us and how you're shaping communities all across the world. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you continue to teach us more of the goodness of God. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning as we open the book of Titus. I'd ask if you're comfortable that you just say a prayer, quick prayer for five or 10 seconds and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your spirit this morning. I say pray for me, that God will use the preparation to show us not Uh, more of any one person, but more of the beauty of Jesus this morning as we talk through some scriptures. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Guys, today, today is our last week in the book of Titus. And all God's people said, half of you got the answer right, half of you failed. I was talking with Britt. He gave a great sermon a couple weeks ago, and he started his sermon by saying, we're still in the book of Titus, open in chapter 2. And I said, you got to help me out more than that. We're going to be in chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And what we want to do today is really put a bow on what Titus is all about. And, And we've themed it out as just the simple ability of the gospel to transform, starting with churches, moving into families, and into chapter 3 with the communities that the gospel thrives in. And so if we're going to do that this morning, we have to talk about the culture we're in and the culture we're trying to create. We have to talk about the culture that we live in each and every day and the culture that God calls us to live out each and every day because we've been formed by the gospel. And the book of Titus is all about how God's gospel is good news. The work and role of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit changes us, fundamentally changes everything about us and every person we interact with. And so we have to start by asking the question, what is our culture saying to us right now? And look, we've talked at length about this, but if there's any one thing I think our culture is spouting forward, 
It's the idea that we are more divided than ever before. I was reading about how divided we are as a country and a Reuters poll got put out a couple years ago that said, because of how divided we are, especially politically, one in six people don't talk to family members anymore because they have different views. The, the, the divide that we feel right now as a country isn't just our country's divide. Starting with the coronavirus a year and a half ago to right now, all 18 advanced countries in the world, I think 17 of them feel more divided now than they were 18 or 20 months ago. Canada said 61% of its people said we feel more divided than we did a year and a half ago to 36%. The Netherlands, 83% said we're more divided. Germany said 77% said we're more divided than we were a year and a half ago. And the U.S. of A said 88% of us feel more divided than we were 18 months ago. We are a divided culture and a divided people. But I know what you're saying. That's the culture, Charlie, and we're not the culture. We're Christians. Go team Jesus. We are different than the culture that we live in. Here's my point. Here's my problem is I don't know if we are. There's a professor and a sociologist named Michael Emerson at the University of Illinois. He said, quote, I've been studying religion and religious congregations for 30 years. He's written several books on it. And he said, this is a level of conflict that I've never seen. What's the difference now? The conflict is over entire worldviews, politics, race, and how we're to be in the world, and even what religion and faith are fundamentally for. There's a pastor named Steve Besner in Houston of a Baptist church I read about this week, and he said that one time, quote, I recently preached a sermon in which I spoke about caring for the poor. There were obviously a couple comments made to me afterwards about how he was pushing a liberal agenda. He said, obviously, caring for the poor is pretty central to the New Testament. Russell Moore, who was an SBC member, Southern Baptist Convention, now writes and works for Christianity Today, said that there are pastors who are simply exhausting. And he tells a story of a pastor who prayed for Biden, and in the sermon, a woman started yelling at him from the congregation and said, Biden isn't the president, the election was stolen. That's not the argument we're getting into today. The question is simply, as a church, are we more divided than the culture that is divided? Are we not? What's the cost of that? Because the gospel is supposed to transform cultures, not be transformed by the culture. And so today, as we dive into the last part of Titus, what we see is a reminder of the beautiful gospel that we're supposed to live into. And then Paul ends it with a reminder that tells them to keep being transformed. It picks up in verse 8. It starts like this. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If you were here last week, when it says this saying is trustworthy, it's kicking it back to chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. I'm just going to read that because it's beautiful. Nick taught on it last week. This is the saying that's trustworthy. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by the works of righteousness that we have done, but on the basis of his mercy. Through the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us in full measure through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, since we've been justified by his grace, we become heirs with confident expectation of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. You know the trustworthy saying? What Jesus did for you and what Jesus has for you. The trustworthy saying is simply the gospel. In a culture that doesn't preach gospel, we need to be reminded that the saying of God, the gospel, is trustworthy. There are five times in all of the pastoral epistles that, falls, that Paul uses that phrase. This is trustworthy. This is the only time in Titus. 
He's saying, as I'm leaving you, at the very last few verses of this, last few sentences of this letter to you, let me remind you what's really important. All the things you've read about, about what Jesus did for you and what Jesus has for you, those things are trustworthy. Nick said it so well last week. He said, if the people can't see the kindness of God through you, then they aren't seeing the kind of God that saved you. That saying is trustworthy. That God loves you, that God is for you, no matter what you see outside of the people of God. He's building a case for a message, for an ethos, for a philosophy that changes people. And so he goes back to the core tenets of the gospel. And he says, this is what we know to be true beyond all doubt. And then he presses it home a little more. He says, I want to insist on such truths so that you have placed, so that those of you that have placed their faith in God may be intent. You have two words there, insist and intent. And that insist word literally means stress. I want you to stress on such truths. What that means literally is I want you to press down on and make those a point of emphasis all day, every day. What he says is I want you to be, I want you to be confident in the gospel. I feel like it's really hard when, when culture is so different from the ways and rhythms of Jesus. It's really hard to be confident in the ways and rhythms of Jesus. We did a series a few months ago on why we need one another. We need one another because I need you to remind me of the goodness of the gospel. And if I'm not reminded of it, like Andy talked about, I forget it. So he says, this statement is trustworthy that Jesus loves you and is for you. And he says, and you're going to insist on this, be confident in this truth so that those who have placed their faith in God may be intent. That word intent there literally means that you might dwell on it. And what he means by that is simply that you not only dwell on it, but that the gospel and the good truth of the gospel that's trustworthy comes to mind often, that we see it play out. One of the things I make fun of churches for, uh, I make fun of mine just as well, by the way, a pet peeve of mine are any series that are called at the movies, okay? Look, no harm, no foul. I get why people do it. I just, I just, I just cannot stand those kinds of series, right? I cannot stand it, but I will say this. Uh, so we won't be doing one at Crossroads anytime soon, okay? Uh, but I will say this, the purpose behind them is good. Because what those series do is it forces us to look at a movie that might not be about Jesus and, and forces us to say, where do we see themes of Jesus in our current culture and context? It's a good exercise in doing what this text says. Put on the lens or the frame of the gospel and see those themes everywhere because God is good. Be mindful about those themes and let those themes shape your everyday. That's how you become transformed. One of my favorite quotes is by C.S. Lewis. And he talks about the nature of us to believe in something and and how we believe in things and what we're supposed to believe in and and how we're supposed to challenge and test belief. But he goes on to say this. He said, you cannot see through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. And why I love that is because what Paul is writing here at the end of this book is that the lens of the gospel is the lens through which you see all the other things through. Not your job, not your kid's sports calendar, not CBC, the lens through which we interpret the rest of our life is the trustworthy saying of who Jesus is and what he did for you. And the writer saying, find that in the everyday. Find gospel notes as you raise your kids and as you go to work and as you come to church and as you trick or treat and as you buy stuff for love packs. 
Find themes and notes of the gospel in all you do. Insist on it. Be confident in it and intend to it. Meaning you might keep bringing it up again and again and again. And here's why. Because when you do that, it says that you will engage in good works. It's just a simple truth that he's been hammering home throughout the entirety of the book. That what you say oftentimes becomes what we do. That if you talk about gospel themes and gospel narratives, guess what's easier to do? Live into a gospel rhythm. One of my favorite things I've heard as a parent in the last year, I've been chewing on it and chewing on it, is someone that said to me, I once read that we should say to our kids, you must be so proud of yourself instead of I'm so proud of you because they'll grow intrinsically motivated rather than motivated to please others. So I've been trying to pull my kid aside when she doesn't punch her brother in the face and say, good job, you must be so proud of yourself, you know? This idea that that what we speak and and the lens through which we see the rest of our world becomes our reality. The question I simply have is, what's the lens through which we see our world? Are we divided like other people, or do we see the lens through the transforming gospel of Jesus? He's ending the book, and he's saying, remember what's true, and then remember that what's true defines all other things in your life and world. Don't let anything else take that spot. And then he goes on to say that you should do good work. That's what the whole book is. It's really broad in the Greek, that term, because good works are really broad. He doesn't simply define it. It's kind of up to the people of God that read this book to think to themselves, what is good right now for me? What is loving and what is kind and what is gentle and what is self-controlled? All the adjectives he goes through time and time again in this book. But as we talk about the story of the gospel, how it's changed us, the trustworthy saying of how good Jesus is to us, as we talk about those, as we dwell on those, those things become our reality as people that follow Jesus. So then he says, this is my favorite line in this text, these things are good and beneficial for all people. I love when the Bible does this, when the scriptures does this, when We see a God thing and we make a God thing a people thing because it gives validity to the God thing. So I like it when, you know, you look at the Old Testament law, for example, you'll find some crazy laws on ritual washings and then fast forward a couple thousand years and you're like, oh, that really helped against infection. And and I can say, man, maybe God knew what he was doing. What, What the writer is doing is saying, if you live into ways of the gospel, then guess what happens? Everybody, follower of Jesus or not follower of Jesus are better for it. I was watching a Flower Mound town council meeting a couple years ago because I'm fun. I was watching one and then they were debating over, I forget what it was, a store like Walgreens or a CVS because we need more of those. And um, some guy in the council said, you know, if we don't pass this, then a school or a church is going to go in here and we can't stop it. And what he meant by that was, in in the state of Texas, uh, schools and churches can build wherever. They don't need zoning rights. We can just pop up wherever we want to, you know? But he said it in a negative way, like what we don't need is another non-tax-paying revenue source taking up tax-taxable property. And here's what I love about that phrase, the things that are good and beneficial for all people. There is numerous documentation on something called the halo effect. Have you guys heard of the halo effect? The halo effect simply states that churches are good for communities, regardless of whether you believe in Jesus or not. I'm going to give you a couple of numbers. I'm going to read some of this simply because I'm pretty biased when it comes to this conversation. According to the 2016 uh, Faith Count study by Religious Freedom and Business Foundation, 
Religion in America contributes to about $1.2 trillion of socioeconomic value annually in the U.S. economy. That's equivalent of being the world's 15th largest national economy, outpacing nearly 180 other countries and territories. It's more than the global annual revenues of the world's top 10 tech companies, including Apple, Amazon, and Google. It's also 50% larger than the global annual revenues of America's six largest oil and gas companies. That's all faith communities. Out that, that's private schools that are religiously affiliated. And, and out of those things, $418 billion in revenue comes strictly through religious congregations, through people in churches. $418 billion. The data shows that congregations overwhelmingly include society-building, outward community-focused programs with over 300,000 congregants helping to recruit volunteers for programs outside their walls, like Big Brother, Big Sister, United Way, American Red Cross. We work with feeding children organizations like Love Packs or Salvation Army, if you want to, or CCA in Louisville. He's making the case. There's an overwhelming point of uh, data points that show that churches are good for communities. There's a book written by a guy named David O'Reilly called What a Church's Economic Worth Is. And it says... An average-sized church congregation, two to 400 members, so a little smaller than us, brings in 4.2 million annually into area businesses. It says that larger churches, around a couple thousand, bring in 11.2 million annually. He says poverty alleviation, the average small church invests around 140K a year into their community in programs and services and volunteers. It says large churches increase property values, actually, in the surrounding communities by 6.27%. Let me give you one more. Churches are statistically proven to decrease crime rates. That's why Double Oak's so safe, everybody. He's making a case that churches, whether you believe in Jesus are or not, are good for you and good for us. More data points out that the presence of a church increases graduation rates, student grade point averages, and college attendance. So you can look at this macro version and say, hey, churches might not pay taxes, but they're really good for societies because following in the ways of Jesus is how we're supposed to live. That's what transforms us. So so Paul writes at the end and he says, look, when you live out these things that are good, good defined by God through the person and work of Jesus and enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you do those things, you will flourish. It'll change the world you live in to the world that God created. Let me give you a specific example. There's a guy named Roy Hardesley. He's the former deputy leader of the Labor Party in the UK, and he's an atheist. And he goes on to talk about the role of Christians in society, and it's a long quote, but it's good. He said, the arguments against religion are well-known and persuasive for him, yet men and women who believe are the people most likely to take the risks and make the sacrifices involved in helping others. Good works are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are the most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. The correlation is so clear that it's impossible to doubt that faith and charity go hand in hand. It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being Christian, yet men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and the miracles do not go to Salvation Army at night. He says the only possible conclusion is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that, while they do not condition an attitude of all believers, 
influence enough of them to make them morally superior to atheists like me. The truth may make us free, but it has not made us admirable. It's an atheist, like what he sees in followers of Jesus. My question is, is that the church now? So Paul sets up this example of this is what you're supposed to be. This is what the whole book's been. Be changed by doing better. Not, not because you need to, but because you know Jesus and he compels you to. Not because you're earning the love of Christ because you already have it. And the best motivator to action is not merit, but it's security and knowing that we're loved. And so he says, simply keep doing those things. And I wish he ended the book there. Like, rah, rah, let's go team Jesus. I wish he said, this is the gospel, don't forget it, and beyond. But that's not how he ends the book, because he knows people. Crete, where he wrote the book, too, is a wildly divided place and culture. You had different ethnicities there, because it's kind of a hodgepodge of not the best people in the world. We talked about it, kind of rebellious and wild types. You had different groups there between the Romans and the Greeks. You had different philosophies and different gods they followed. It was very diverse in thought, in socioeconomics, in, 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 in beliefs, in religion, and everything you can imagine. And he writes this letter to this man, and he said, the gospel will change that. That's the hope. The gospel will change that. But then he ends the whole book by saying, this is what's going to get in the way. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, quarrels, and fights about the law, because they are useless and empty. All right, let's talk nuance. What we can't do is say, see, he says to never, ever disagree with anybody or fight for anything. That's not true. Jesus disagreed with people. Jesus overthrew tables and temples and says, this is not good right now. What he does is he's making a case that asks us to see the forest through the trees. What he does is he talks about what it looks like to disagree well and is it really worth it. What he does is he says, if you want to be a transforming community, remember the mission that united you in the first place. So this doesn't say to us that there's not some things that we should have serious discussions on. It probably says to us that the things that you think are serious might not be that serious. Because look, every once in a while we need Martin Luther to post some thesis to a wall, but most times, most times, it's not the arguments we have in everyday life. Most times, it's not what is dividing the church. I think if it's me and just me, what am I guiding lines or guiding principles for? Is it worthy of a discussion and a disagreement and maybe a division? Is, is this thing changing who God is or what God did for me? Pretty basic line. Is it changing who God is and what God did for me? Because so often the conversations we get in, how divided we are, comes from places not of purpose for the mission of God, but pride. And so we talk about foolish controversy in the first century world. They talked a lot about Sabbath. There's a lot about like, well, what kind of wick should we burn on the Sabbath? We don't have that problem. I think through some of the things that churches have fought over in my lifetime. There's a, a guy named Thomas Rainier, and he's kind of a church guru. He was the president of Lifeway for a while, and now he actually has a church blog, website, and organization called churchanswers.com. So you can't have that website if you don't know what you're talking about. And a couple years ago, he asked a Twitter question, what arguments have you seen in churches? And it went viral. All these things are real, not made up. Here's a couple. He said, I've seen arguments over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Arguments, church fights. I want you to remember that I had a mustache at the beginning of this fall, okay? He said he's seen an argument in the churches 
on whether or not we need to a vote, a whole church vote on whether or not we should remove the clock in the worship center because I don't want you people to know what time it is, you know? Uh, oh, this is my favorite. There's a disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing because with God, there's no luck. <laughs> I wish I was making this up. This is what churches fight over. Uh, a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of just grape juice, and then that couldn't be used, you know? A fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. Everybody knows it's the one you see in the hospital where his eyes follow you everywhere you go, right? <laughs> it's clearly the answer. This last one. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee, and I wish I was making this up, but listen to the end. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. The members of the church left in the latter example. I know, we think it's trivial and we think it's not a big deal, but what if it is? Because are we living like our culture? Or are we living different than our culture? I gotta understand that, that two things this made me do. One, it made me very thankful for my church, <laughs> for our church, because those things seem laughable to me, but they're not laughable to everybody. Two, I wonder how many people have experiences with things like this in churches when we argue over things that aren't Jesus, who God is and what he's done for us. Three, we have to remember that, that this is what Paul did in all of his writings. He was the bridge between a kind of way to follow God and another kind of way to follow God. He was the bridge between this Jewish tradition steeped, steeped in action and steeped in rhythms and steeped in rituals to a newer tradition that said Jesus is, is, is a fulfillment of the ritual that we hold so dearly. His job when he wrote most of his books was to find these two factions and unite them and said, hey guys, literally don't forget that what unites us is bigger than what divides us. And this is the only way forward for the people of God. One of my favorite sections that he writes is Philippians 2, 1 through 2. And he said, if there's any encouragement from belonging in Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit, are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. So, so when he says that unity is important, he realizes that the lack of unity is what causes the movement of God to not be transformative. That word that we see quarrels or arguments in, in the text in Titus, that word literally is the word lawyer there in the Greek. And a couple things about that one, I think we have to recognize that we are pretty predisposed to, um, to fighting with one another. Our country leads the world in lawyers per capita at one for every 300. We are a people that like to argue. What's the cost of our arguing? And then he goes on to say this, because they are useless and empty. The words for empty there in the Greek oftentimes refer to idolatry. It's like when you worship something that has no return. So what he's doing is making this case that what you're fighting for isn't building up your community, it's tearing down your community. We live in an individualistic culture and we value the individual above the community. So self-expression is one of our highest values. Everyone has the right to express their own opinion but Christ died so that we might be one. I think the more that we argue about things that don't matter, the more our message won't matter to the people who matter to God. So I love this text because at the end of this book, all about transformation, what 
Paul does. He says, remember, this is why you're here and this is what really transforms you and see it in your everyday and live it out more realistically today than yesterday, but understand the thing that will divide you, the thing that will stop you from being transformative as, as a people is when you see individuals over the whole. Again, this is not an argument to not argue. This is an argument to use wisdom in what we argue about. And I think far more times we don't than we do. So he says, reject a divisive person after one or two warnings. This is how serious he takes it. He says, literally kick them out of your camp. Let me, let me stop down there for just a sec. When we see this in Matthew 18, when, when we see texts like this about, about saying people need to take a time out from church for a little while, it's always so that redemptive exclusion may bring about honest reform. The whole point and purpose is always that you see the seriousness of what you're doing. It's not protection from us against you. It's that you might be transformed and changed. So he makes a case here that, that what he's fighting against are people that love to fight, not people that fight every once in a while. What he's fighting against are people that bring division to the everyday pursuit of Jesus. And we have to find out as a people where do we divide in healthy ways and where do we divide because we are prideful? And then he ends by saying, you know that such a person is twisted by sin and conscious of it himself. So he literally ends by saying, you know why people do this? It's because they've convinced themselves that they're the best good and the gospel isn't anymore. The question is, why do we argue? Why do we fight? Why do we divide? Paul says, if that is what you're known for. You won't be the community God wants you to be. So often I think as a church, right here, right now, we're so much like Crete and Titus as he wrote to him. Where our personal preference takes the front seat and God's purpose for us takes the back seat. We argue over politics and we argue over ethics and we argue over fill in the blank here. You probably have a list of 25 of them. I don't know if people see that if they see that, do they really see Jesus? And I got to ask the question, are we like our culture or are we not like our culture? As one pastor put it, culture needs an alternative to itself, not an echo of itself. Where are we? Throw a couple more numbers at you. A recent Gallup study revealed <coughs> that a percent of Americans who have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the church or organized religion is at an all-time low. Just 36% of Americans have a high level of confidence. It was 68% in 1975. It says the number one quality non-Christians uh, non and, 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 and Christians that left the church look for in a person in whom they talk about faith with is that you listen without judgment at 62%. But only 34% of those people said they actually know a Christian that possesses that quality. What Paul does when he ends his book he makes a plea that says, if you want to be a transforming culture, focus on unity. And so he says, this is the point and purpose of this book. Change the culture in, but transforming communities simply focus on unity more than individual preference. And so it's a, it's a hard call at the end, but it's a beautiful one. It's a reminder of what we're supposed to be and supposed to do as we live out the gospel well, but at the same time, it's a reminder of what will get in the way if we don't pay attention to the way of Jesus. And so as a people, what do we do from here? As a people, I think a couple things. I think one, we don't forget what verse eight is all about. So we talk early and often about how we see God unfolding in our world. So then this week, find somebody and tell them where you see the gospel in your life in the everyday. 
Find somebody and say, this is where I saw Jesus today. Find somebody and tell them that because the more we talk about it, the more reality it becomes in our world. Uh, We talk about it on staff some. You know, we read books of people we agree with and people we disagree with. Sometimes disagree in big ways and sometimes small ways, but we say it a couple different ways, but I like to read with a highlighter, not a Sharpie. You know what that means? I want to read thinking through this, how God has formed me through this text, not thinking through this is how I disagree with this person. And a buddy of mine, he was a pastor in Chicago, a very big church. And uh, there's a book that they read together as a staff and he wanted to talk about it. So they got together to talk about it as a staff. And he sat down and they handed him a piece of paper. And on the piece of paper, it said, here are seven reasons why you don't like this book. <laughs> you know, it's just that idea of how do we engage with the world around us? Are we looking for where God is moving? Are we looking for places to fight over? Do we read with a highlighter or a Sharpie, you know? I think beyond that, it it comes down to this idea that Paul is reminding this church of in a highly individualized culture in Crete, remember that we're better together than we are apart. Remember that we're more together than we are individually because that's how we transform our world is through remembering the purpose and the point of the gospel in the first place. Expect this idea of selflessness so that people see the beauty of Jesus. Because that's what he did for us. He gave up so much so that we might be given something. I'll end with how Paul talks in Philippians 2 as well. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, each of you to the interests of others. This is what the first church did. This is how the first church went from being a group of people that gathered and were persecuted to the dominant way the world thought in 250 years. They said, let's remember what brought us together in the first place and let's watch watch God change our families and our churches, our communities, and our societies as we show people a better way, a way that reflects his goodness, a way that reflects the hope that we have in him, in a way that shows people there's a different way to live than what we see everywhere else. That's the book of Titus. So may we be transformed as a people together. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you're continually at work among us. That that I see so much of the gospel transforming the people in this place. My prayer is, Holy Spirit, that you you cause us to remember the value of unity as a church that wants to change our world. That we remember the value of unity as, as it points to the goodness and bigness and majesty of Jesus. That unity in our churches will point to the bigger picture of God over individual preference. I pray that we be a church that fights, that fights for unity because that's how things are transformed. So give us some boldness for it as we talk about our faith and how Jesus is changing us as we pass on that hope to everyone else who comes in contact with us. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.